Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Whisperer Radio Show. Glad you decided to tune in today. I think we have a great show planned, and I think everyone will enjoy it who's listening. Uh, my name is Hari Kulsa, and I am your host. I am a nurse practitioner and patient advocate. I'm also the president of Healthcare Whisperer, Inc., a healthcare navigation and patient advocacy company. I can be followed on Twitter at H-A-R-I-K-108 and Facebook at Healthcare Whisperer. You can always go to my website, read my blog, find more out about me at www.healthcarewhisperer.com. Now, the purpose of this show is to provide information and tips on the healthcare system and how to better navigate the, the system. We all know it can be scary, it can be daunting, and filled filled with so many barriers. So before we begin our show today, and I'm again, I'm really excited about this show, uh, I would like to send my prayers and my love to all the people of Oklahoma City and the city of Moore and just send out my love to them. I know it's difficult. I can't even imagine what that devastation is like and the suffering that people are experiencing. If any of you would like to donate or help, you can send donations to www.redcross.org or call 1-800-HELP-NOW. It's also a site, uh, OK Strong Disaster Relief Fund. And if you feel so moved, I encourage you to uh, to come in to to donate. Now today's show, I'm I'm very excited about. We are lucky to have uh, Dr. Gail Gazelle, MD, and she's going to be here to talk about uh, um, physician burnout. It's um, you know it's a problem. I, I think that doesn't get talked enough about, and she has become very dedicated. Uh, she's a coach, and she's helping uh, physicians navigate that that terrible terrain they find themselves in. She is board certified in internal medicine and hospice and palliative care. She's an assistant clinical professor at Harvard um, School of Medicine. Uh, and she's been quoted just about everywhere. She's been on CNN, NBC, NPR, uh, qu- quoted in O Magazine, Washington Post, USA Today, and more. And best of all, she's recently released a book to be published this summer called Mindfulness, Affirmation, and Growth for the Alzheimer's Caregiver. So at, without further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Gazelle. Hello, Dr. Gazelle. Are you there? Hi, Hari. It's really a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, great. You know, I'm so grateful that you took the time. I know you're very busy with all your books and teaching and work. I, I'm So thank you very, very much for taking the time. Well, thank you. Well, you know, this is a really important topic, but before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in this, you know, thinking about this area that you're working in now? You know, um, when I look back on my life, I, I sometimes wonder if it was all pointing in a certain direction. I volunteered in a hospice when I was an undergrad at Cornell, and something drew me to working with hospice patients. I, I really didn't know what it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But I decided to go to medical school 
to work in hospice and to wow. work in palliative care. And um, when I went to medical school, there was not a field called palliative care. <laughs> um, that's wow. something that's developed since then. So I, um, after medical school and after completing my residency, I did a fellowship in medical ethics. And sure enough, uh, the HMO that I was working at, when they decided to start a palliative care for, uh, program, they thought, well, who knows something about end of life? Well, maybe that Dr. Gazelle, she knows something about medical ethics. That's <laughs> certainly tied to end of life. So I uh, developed and then directed a palliative care program at one of the largest HMOs in Boston. Um, my, my so you, concern, you developed you developed that the, the program itself. Yes, I did. Wow! Wow! Whoa. Yes, it was really a pioneering effort in the late '90s. We didn't have palliative care the way we have it now. No, um, we didn't even talk about end of life issues back then. That's right. That's yeah. right, and we've we've come a long way. Right. right. As I continued in my work in hospice and palliative care, one day a light bulb went off, and I thought, you know, what is it that I do with this very vulnerable population of individuals who are at, coming near the end of their life and their families who are struggling with something that is completely new and unexpected and different and something that they haven't gotten courses in or, or life experience in necessarily. And I realized that what I do is advocate for needs that are not met by the healthcare system. Wow. In terms of speaking about people, about the elephant in the room, the fact that the person does have an incurable disease, about holding a sacred space for the family and for the individual so that they can really have the best quality of life in this last period of their of time, and expertise in pain management, managing any possible symptom a person could have. So the light bulb went off, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should advocate for people who actually get to live. <laughs> and I started, as you know, Hari, as a, as a fellow patient advocate, I started one of the first physician-run patient advocacy practices in the country. So I'm proud to do that work. That work has a lot of meaning for me as well. But frankly, another light bulb went off, which was if I'm going to advocate for patients and people struggling to navigate our very broken healthcare system, maybe I should advocate for doctors too. And that's what led me to go back into training as a life and professional coach. And I now, in addition to my patient advocacy work, coach physicians and physician leaders. Wow. So, I, so your work with the general public brought you to this. You started looking, I guess, as an advocate, and that's something I experienced. You have to look at the whole picture. And yes. when we're looking at the whole picture, we see everyone who's involved. And I imagine that as a physician, you started like when you started looking at other physicians and kind of seeing it in their eyes. I mean, especially because you do a lot. A lot of our advocacy work is hospital work. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we our patients are in and out of the hospital. We're talking to hospitalist doctors. I imagine that you had moments where you thought, "Are you hearing me, doctor?" You know, and you're wondering mm. why are they not necessarily listening? Is that is that you know, kind of like what happened when you saw the whole picture? You saw this this change in your fellow physicians. I think it was partially um, knowing that they weren't necessarily fully listening to the whole of a person's life, but I, I think it was a little bit deeper. It was really kind of, why aren't they? 
And with a sense of compassion, beginning to see the kind of pressures that my colleagues are under wherever they're practicing, if it's in a hospital or an outpatient clinic, wherever it is, whatever part of the country, the system is so broken, the system is so focused on the bottom line and on productivity that Mm -hmm. it does not bring out the best in physicians. It really doesn't. Mm And I began to feel a deeper and deeper compassion for my fellow physicians around how they are driven to act. Because I I truly believe that most people go into the field of medicine to help other individuals, to gather the knowledge and the expertise to help people who are sick and obviously extremely vulnerable. And I think that in many cases, that passion for helping others actually gets stamped out of physicians. The medical training is such that, frankly, if you're not perfect, you're a failure. You learn Mm -hmm. that very early in medical school, and that same message is reinforced in internship and residency. At the Mm -hmm. same time, you're basically told that the patient always comes first, which makes sense. In any interaction with a patient, obviously the patient comes first. But many doctors are also taught that that somehow means that they should come last. So physicians don't necessarily learn how to take care of themselves, (laughs) how to maintain a good work-life balance, how to maintain hobbies and passions and interests that they have that, you know, can help renew them when they're outside of work. And things become very, very, very unbalanced. Physicians, sometimes we joke that physicians live in a negative time zone. They have no time. <laughs> you know, they barely have time, frankly, to eat lunch. And their families right. want more of them. Their patients want more of them. The healthcare system wants more and more and more. And the poor physician begins to feel like, what about me? What about me? What about my needs? And I think that can sometimes not bring out the best in physicians. And the other thing I find that I think creates burnout that people are starting to acknowledge more and more is when something happens. I mean, you you mentioned the thing about being perfect. Well, when something goes wrong or there's a mistake or an error or, you know, even if a client passes away, even they've done everything possible, you know, there was no way to release that, you know, that incredible Mm. stress. There's no one to talk to. And I think now, I mean, that's like, to me, such a... To have to hold something like that, um, I think in Massachusetts we're a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, we have, we really try to help people. You know, that in the hospitals they're trying more. But is that? I mean, is that something you see too? I mean, it's so hard to talk about when you make a mistake in medicine because you're not supposed to, right? That's right. I think that's a really good point, Hari. That um, the more people have to keep any burdens inside. Frankly, it's obvious when you think about it, the more they're going to be weighed down. The more they're weighed down, the less they're going to have to give others and to give to themselves. So I think whether it's a medical error, whether it's an unexpected outcome, you know, that uh, for surgery, something that goes awry, um, whether it's a patient death, whether it's um, really anything in the spectrum of sadness, there are not natural outlets for physicians. Physicians are shamed for showing emotions. They're supposed to be detached and show their knowledge and their expertise and obviously never, never, never shed a tear. And I think you're exactly right that that leaves physicians um, 
kind of in a no-win place. It, we want the full humanity of our physicians right. to come forth because it's from that humanity that their deepest caring and compassion will come forth for their patients. And yet we don't give physicians the tools to really grow that kind of compassion and humanity. No, no. And so so why don't you – we've sort of touched on some of the symptoms or – I mean, what, what what would you call exactly? Would you uh, say is physician burnout? I mean, how do you how do you see it? I mean, in when when you're working with someone, mm. physicians call me for coaching, and they say, you know, I don't even know why I get out of bed in the morning. I went oh. to medical school. I was so passionate about making a change in the world. You know, if it's a um, if it's a pediatrician, for example. You know, I, I, my brother had a chronic illness when we were growing up, and I just, it had such an influence on me. I wanted to help other children reach their fullest potential, and I wanted to do that as a doctor. So, you know, they had so much passion and life purpose, and they get to a point in their career where all of a sudden it's completely gone, and they have no passion, and no sense of meaning, purpose, and accomplishment. That's a red flag for burnout. Mm-hmm. There's also a sense of exhaustion, just this incredible emotional and physical fatigue that people experience when they're burnt out. And really the worst part of burnout is, the, you know, the, the, um, the term, the psychological term is depersonalization. And, and what it means is beginning to see patients as objects, not as people with real-life right. problems, but as objects to kind of be moved along the conveyor belt of healthcare. And I think for any of us who've been on the patient side, we've seen that. We sometimes feel that sense that we're being moved along in the big factory of healthcare. And that, um, you know, that is one of the signs of burnout. So that, right, that's, and those, I are, think those are the red flags. I, I, yeah, and, and then, you know, it, it's it's really heartbreaking to hear this. I mean, um, and I think that the general public doesn't really quite know about this. I mean, there not just is the expectation for the doctors to be perfect, but the the physicians, I mean, the the patients almost want that also. Like they've mm. been brainwashed to think, or trained and schooled to think. I go to my doctor, he fixes me. He or she fixes right. me. Yeah. You know, and there you are, you're looking at someone who comes, you know, as a physician, sometimes, you know, you you just get tired of it. You want a, you want a little compassion on the other side. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think what's key is um, human integrity, honesty, and dignity. I think it's really key in, in the doctor-patient interaction. And if you think about it, you know, in, in, in a fairly common but, relatively tragic situation is somebody with advanced cancer. Uh-huh. And the oncologist um, can't bring themselves to be honest with the patient about the poor prognosis. And really, um, if the physician can really just simply be present with the patient, even if they don't know the answer, even if they're in a situation the patient is saying, isn't there any other treatment, doctor, that would help me? or that would help my loved one in this dire circumstance. And for the physician to be able to sit with that and not have the answer and say in the most compassionate and genuine way, I so wish that there was a cure for the kind of cancer that you have, or even something that would give you another few years to live. I, I so wish that that were the case. But 
I want to be honest with you. I, I don't want to put you through chemotherapy that isn't going to help you. I don't want to send you for radiation that's just going to make your life worse. I care about you. And I wish there was an answer, and I wish I had that answer as your physician. Right. But I can still be here for you. So there's a room, there's a, there's a place there for uncertainty. And the fact that the doctor doesn't have all the answers, and I think cancer is just one place where very tragically we're short on answers. Right. But for the physician to be able to be real about that with a patient, I think I think a, a patient really feels that and hears the concern and the and the caring in that doctor's voice. And there's a room there's room then for imperfection. Right. There's room for that the human element which you speak of. You know that yes. that that connection between human beings. You know when yes. when someone understands that they can't. You know the the dilemma. And um, I, uh, the, uh, last night I had a show where I had some people on uh, who are involved in the rare and undiagnosed illness movement who mm. are, you know, they're, most of them are have had children who have passed away without a diagnosis. And I think that for them, a lot, I, keep hear, I keep hearing a lot that they've, you know, the doctors just, they're not willing to pursue it. They're not willing to continue on the road to help them and they mm. just and i think that's another place where doctors must shut down is i can't help this person but i'm too afraid to say that so i'm not going to tell them anything you yes. know i'm just going to say well there's nothing really here you know and mm. maybe this is uh you know made up and and, mm. and not that everybody they, does they that, in, your, I th- in your head kind of thing in in your head yeah and i mm-hmm. and i think that that's you know another way that doctors must burn out because it it's I, I like you. I think they want most doctors want to help. You know, they want yes. to be able to help people, but there's such you know there are so so much we don't know in medicine, and they're supposed to know medicine. And I think that that's you know again I see that uh, can be where burnout really can start when you have to pretend like you've done or not even pretend, but you just you don't have an answer. Yes, and if you can be honest about that, I mean, there there are so many areas of medical practice where, frankly, there is a lot of uncertainty, and that can be incredibly hard for patients to live with. Obviously, we want to know the answer. If something is wrong with our body, we want to be able to fix it, and there are just many areas in medicine where physicians don't have the answer. Think about chronic pain. I think that's another example. 50 million Americans living with chronic low back pain, and do you think we have any good solutions for that in the medical profession? We don't. And I think the key, though, is really it comes back down to um, sort of honesty and integrity in the human condition. (laughs) So compassion for patients when there's uncertainty and also compassion for the doctor, both for the doctor to have for themselves to release themselves from what they've really been, what's been stamped into them in their training that if they don't know the answer, they might as well leave the profession. That, that most physicians, if you ask them, that that is their belief, and there's and there's kind of an imposter syndrome that goes along with it. That, you know, I'm not really as smart as people think I am. And if people knew, if people really knew how little I know, you know, I don't even know what would happen to me. So people, physicians, live with these kind of burdens that I think are enormously erosive to their well-being and get in the way of them being fully present and real and compassionate with their patients. And enjoying their work. 
and enjoying their work and actually enjoying their lives and feeling the sense of pride and accomplishment and fulfillment that they really have a right to feel. Right. And so with your coaching, I mean, what was it hard to get doctors to get going in this field? I mean, because it's like, like physicians and medical professionals, they have to sort of come out of the closet to even look for someone like you. So how has mm-hmm. how's the response been to you in this area of coaching? Coaching, yeah, yeah, it's a great question because coaching is very new to physicians. In the corporate world, everybody has a coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all the CEOs, you know, all, all of the leaders, but even the rank and file, coaching is, is very, very commonly used both to um, enhance performance in the business world, to increase the bottom line, but also to increase well-being amongst employees. So it's so uh, widely used in the corporate sector. And look at physicians. You know, physicians are high achievers, high performers, we hope. (laughs) And Atul Gawande, in a a wonderful piece in the New Yorker called Personal Best, um, spoke about, you know, athletes have coaches, CEOs have coaches, you know, physicians are high performers, shouldn't they have coaches too? And so he opened the field up uh, for physicians to begin looking at this as an avenue. Many physicians are, are so afraid of the stigma of speaking to anybody about anything from the neck up in their own lives and yeah. how that's going to be viewed and potentially used against them, that you're exactly right. They, they won't go anywhere near therapy. And it's challenging sometimes for them to go near coaching. And the fact that coaching is not therapy and that it's more a model of wellness and resourcefulness and strengths and joy and the whole person rather than um, psychotherapy, which is often a model of pathology, that there's something wrong with the person that needs to be fixed. Coaching, right. So coaching does carry less stigma and I think really can be an avenue for physicians to get their needs met in a way that psychotherapy may be too threatening. Yes, and, you know, just for everybody who's listening or will listen to this later, um, how, you know, I, I think this is a really critical uh, critical issue for the, for going forward with healthcare as we even get more pressure to, you know, in the new system, it's going to be more pressure. How can yeah. someone get in contact with you to, to, to just, just discuss the possibility? How could a physician reach you? Sure. So my website is um, www.gailgazelle.com, so G-A-I-L-G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. So physicians can go to my website. They can also email me at drgazelle at gailgazelle.com. And I offer anybody um, who's potentially interested in coaching or referring somebody to coaching a free consultation. You know, people need to know what it is that they're getting into. So I offer a free session so that they can get a taste of what coaching is and they can see if it's the right fit for them and decide if they want to proceed. Well, that's great. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, um, you know, I think everybody needs it, but I I really love that you focused in on this because, um, you know, it it does impact patients and, and, and do Patients need to know that their doctors are being taken care of. And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, how do you think patients can help in this area? How can patients mm-hmm. change to help physicians feel better about all this? 
how can we you know we we have to become aware that that our physicians are are going are are stressing let's put it that way and um well what can we as patients do from the other side i think that i think really the key is um staying human i love it and <laughs> going going for the compassion so if you're with a doctor and the doctor is looking at their pager and, you know, is looking at the clock or isn't giving you the full attention or really doesn't seem to be listening, the normal place that we go is either anger anger or intimidation. You know, we're in a, such a vulnerable position and the difference in power can be tremendous. You know, there's, there can be a lot at stake. This is our body. This is our health. This is our loved one's health. And so we go to anger or we go to vulnerability. And I think to try to move beyond that, to just getting curious and maybe getting compassionate and saying to the doctor, you know, I'm noticing that uh, there are a lot of demands on your time. Your pager's going off. You're looking at the clock. And um, it must be hard for you to get through the day. I, you know, yeah. wouldn't that be amazing for a patient just to, to say that? The doctor could then say, gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, it would, it would, in a way, it would be calling the doctor to task for what they're doing because really in that moment with the patient, the patient is the most important person in any interaction. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that the doctor should be looking at the clock or their pager. So it's a way of calling the physician back in a, in a kind way, but it's also a way of acknowledging that the doctor is under stress and the doctor has a ridiculous number of demands on her or his time. Too many. Right. Too many. Too many. You know what you said, Hari, about um, about things getting worse. This is the sad reality. Things are very broken in the healthcare system, and they are not about to get better anytime soon. Now that yeah. that is the sad reality, and certainly the pressures on doctors to be even more productive. What that means is double booking, triple booking patients. That slot that you think you have with the doctor, well, there may be two people in that slot, just like when you get on an airplane and they ask some people to get off because there aren't enough seats. So those kind of pressures are continuing, and the electronic health record is another barrier to patient communication. You know, people, doctors often sitting there typing, and you can feel very alienated as a patient. I think the thing to stop and just kind of take a deep breath and remember as a patient is that, sadly, the doctor doesn't really like that electronic medical record any more than you do. And they're now, right. it's, it's federal law that they have to use an electronic record, and it does promote safety, promotes communication within the healthcare system. There are all kinds of wonderful things. But for the doctor, it's an impediment. It takes away their focus from being fully present with the patient. So my vote is to take a deep breath and to be compassionate. That, that's my vote. Sounds like a good vote. I'm going to go with you on that one. <laughs> I think it's a great one. I mean, you can't ask for more. Um, I've had a few moments with my do- I have no problem, you know, calling my doctor um, to task and have, in- and have, but also she's called me to task at times. Mm. And mm. I think, you know, we've, we've created this these moments and i was going to leave her at one time because she was taking too long blah 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 mm-hmm. you know i was waiting and then she came yeah. she she totally apologized i mean we just had this mm. moment and the administrators changed the time anyway it all worked and i just i mm-hmm. think yes i was i remained compassionate she remained compassionate and we were able to move forward but um you I know we're, we're wonderful. Com- 
Yeah, no, and I think, but but I, you know, being a medical person, I, I kind of, like, am able to do that. And I think everybody can if we keep in mind, like you say, human. We're all human, and, and in reality, doctor, doctors go through the same thing. It's just we don't talk about it enough. That's right. You know, we don't talk about right. it, about their pain and suffering. You know, but anyway, so anyway, you know, I can't believe we're almost at the end. We've got a couple <laughs> minutes left here. It goes so fast. This has been fascinating to me. I mean, and I and I hope that people will have listened today and that that you know they they do uh, download your this in this talk because it's fantastic. But I just want to remind people that you've written this wonderful book that's coming out, Mindful Affirmation and Growth for the Alzheimer's Caregiver. And I think it probably speaks a lot to what we've been talking about, that 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 be here now compassion. Sort of, mm-hmm. You know, and very so, definitely. Uh, I think I think Alzheimer's is just one of the most tragic diseases people can have. Um to lose mm-hmm. a loved one bit by bit by bit. And to lose yourself if you're the patient. So I, I think the um the tragedy for caregivers is enormous. The amount of guilt that they feel that they should be doing more, even if they're attending to toileting for their loved one, and the, the loss of the person, the 36-hour day, the nights, the, the changes in behavior, a person becomes someone that you didn't know before. My heart so goes out to people caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's or any form of dementia. So my my book is an attempt to affirm the reality, to validate how incredibly difficult it is, and to provide some inspiration and growth, both through mindfulness, through positive psychology, and through coaching, to give to another very vulnerable population. Right, and you know what? I think I think I'm going to have to, when this book comes out, we're we're going to get I'm going to have you back on because this 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 calls for a much longer conversation. I mean, I think that this so many people are going through this and the pain that people, you know, I I, I just think you you must come back on. Please say you'll come back on to talk about this book at length. <laughs> Ari, I, I would be honored, and it's been a total pleasure to to be with you today. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gail, and thank you for your work, and uh, keep going. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.